If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, take it. We believe that this is God's Word. We gather to submit ourselves to God's Word. The eternal living God who has, he, we have no right to his word and yet he in his kindness has given it to us. And so we come hungry wanting to stare at its truth, wanting it to seep into our hearts and lives so that it would change us. And so we're doing that through the book of James. James is almost to the end of the Bible. It's after the big book of Hebrews. It's before the smaller books of First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and then Revelation. And you're looking for the big number one and the little number nine through verse 11. All of us love a grand reversal, don't we? We love the rags to riches kind of story. In fact, many of us have grown up hearing different rags to riches stories. Maybe you heard the story of Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnate from from Pittsburgh, growing up in a poor community, growing up in a poor family, and then making millions, and in today's standards, probably billions of dollars. We, We love that story. I remember years ago watching the movie Blindside, the story of, of Michael Orr, who had a, a broken family system when a, another family brought him into theirs. And, and through a series of just loving and caring for him, he ended up playing college and then professional football. We love those kinds of stories, though, don't we? The, the down in the dumps to the highest of heights that we could ever imagine And that is often the very nature of the Christian faith. The very central idea and concept of the Christian faith is this massive grand reversal where we go from following our own sins, following the world, to meeting Jesus Christ who transforms our hearts and our lives and brings us to an eternity with him. But if we're not careful, we can love the grand reversal and we can adapt it to our own situations, our own desires, and our own timing. And so what we end up doing is we take the world's idea of grand reversal And we just simply baptize it in Bible language and think that ultimately the grand reversal fully takes place now. And James is going to challenge us with that this morning. He's going to challenge us with the fact that we do have this grand reversal. And it does bring joy in life. But not in the ways that we typically think. And so to see that, this morning, James wants us to understand this singular truth. That the road to the rich life, this reversal where whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, you have some idea of of the rich life. The road to that rich life comes, comes through rejoicing in the ultimate grand reversal. 
the ultimate rags to riches story. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. And as we do, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So James is writing probably the very first, if not one of the first, couple of letters in the entire New Testament because he is a Jew growing up thinking uh, of the Old Testament, living in light of the Old Testament when all of a sudden he has this half-brother who is the Jewish Messiah King that the whole Old Testament points to. And for much of his growing up experience, what we know is that James does not believe Jesus is that Messiah to the point that the gospels show us. His family goes out and says, hey, uh, you're, you're a little crazy. Why don't you come back in? And it's not until Jesus dies and rises from the dead that everything comes together for his family and for James to the point that we see in James 1.1, he does not label himself as the brother of Christ. Man, if you want to name drop, that's the place to name drop. He doesn't do that. He says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now James writes five chapters for us to take the truth that he has learned from the Old Testament, the truth that he has learned from Jesus in his life, and to think about how we actually live in light of Christ in the midst of a world that hates Jesus Christ. The Roman Empire was an empire that hated Jesus because he called himself Lord, which means that he was a rival to Caesar and it cost Jesus his life. The Jewish people hated Jesus because he said that he was God in the flesh and it cost him his life. And so you can just imagine everybody around you hating you for declaring that Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord. And you're trying to figure out how in the world do I actually live for Jesus? And so James just writes to, to help us to, to take the truth of Jesus, to apply it to our daily lives. And as he does, chapter 1 feels as if it's a spattering of ideas. It feels like he just took different paintball ideas and just kind of threw it against the canvas to, to show us uh, what it looks like to live for Christ. And yet what James is trying to do is show us different vignettes or pictures that we might deal with 
in our walk with Jesus Christ. And then he takes those through chapters 2 through 5 and goes deeper into them. And this morning what he is showing us is uh, this grand reversal that as we are uh, dealing with suffering for Christ, living for Christ, it is so often uh, tempting for us to want to escape And one of the ways we escape is by looking at what other people have. And James wants to reset our minds and reset our expectations in light of Jesus Christ. And to do that, he's going to show us three realities and then one response to those three realities. Okay? So let's go and look at this. The first reality is the present. James is very honest. I I love Scripture Because often the biblical writers do not bury their heads in the sand as if they don't realize life is hard. They realize life is hard. And so James, recognizing the trials, if you look back to verses 2 and 3, you you see that James notes the trials for living for Jesus Christ. And in verses 9 to 10, he's going to give us a command because he wants us to live a certain way in light of those trials. But why would he need to give us this command? Again, whenever you read the Bible, you need to kind of put yourself into the story, not as the hero of the story, but as one experiencing the story. And so just imagine yourself in the first century. Trying to live for Jesus when everybody around you is persecuting you, uh, speaking ill of you, and, and wanting to do harm to you. And you're trying to figure out, how do I relieve this pressure? What do I do? How, how do I live the, the life that Christ would want me to live? It's so easy for us to decide how to live based upon our present circumstances, isn't it? Whatever we feel in the moment has the ability to shape our minds and shape our hearts and shape our responses. Which is counter following Christ. And James knows that. And so he challenges that. Look look at verse 9. He starts with this command. He says, let the lowly brother... That is a kind way of giving a command. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Whenever you read scripture, you should ask yourself, why is this here? If I were to complete that sentence, how would I complete that sentence? This is a very odd thing for James to say. So why does he say it? Have you ever been in a lowly position? What do you do? You figure out anything you can to release the pain that you are experiencing. Maybe you focus on what you're good at and you pour all of your attention into that so that you can cloud out everything else. Maybe if you have family, you put all of your attention into family so you can quiet the noise of everything else. 
Maybe if you have money, you, put your, uh, you buy whatever you can to quiet out the, the noise of everything else. Whatever it is, you're looking to somehow relieve the pain that you're feeling in that current moment, thinking it will give you new life. And the message that we hear from the world is just keep masking Just keep masking the pain. Keep masking what you are experiencing. And so the world's message is often uh, this self-help. This idea that you have to somehow believe in yourself or have a positive view of yourself so that you can change the way you think about life. And all of those arrows get directed on you. And James is going to show us a different direction. But it's not just those who feel lowly that need a reorientation. It's very helpful that James shows us this. It's not just those of us who feel like, oh man, life's hard. It's actually those who also feel like life is good. Because notice what he says in verse 10. He said, the rich in his humiliation. So the lowly are to boast in their exaltation, and yet the rich are to boast in their humiliation. That seems a little odd, doesn't it? Like, how how does rich and humiliation go together? Well, well, James will show us, and, and hopefully we'll see in a moment. But what often happens when life is going good? Life is going well, for those of you who speak English. What happens when life is going well? You feel better. You feel like you are better than other people. You feel like you're smarter. And sometimes that little voice inside of you says, if everybody else lived life the way I live life, then maybe they would have a good life too. And so we start to elevate ourselves and call attention to ourselves, thinking that our success in the world immediately means we are better than other people. And James wants us to have a grand reversal in the way we think about our success. In chapter 2, we're actually going to see that this is a major problem in the life of the church, that it is so easy for us in the life of a church to elevate certain people because of their worldly status or their wealth or whatever they bring in that the world praises and for us to just follow the world and praise them while those who have nothing and those who come in with no fanfare we tend to neglect and ignore and James is going to challenge us with what we value that we should value life differently. Why should we value life differently? If you just look at the Old Testament and you look at the trajectory of uh, the Messiah, this king that is to come, that is to uh, right all of the wrongs, that is to raise God's people and bring them back to their promised land and back to this restored relationship with God, What happened so often is that they would have this vision of what the Messiah was going to look like. He was going to come in power. He's going to come in uh, uh, prominence. 
And he was going to come in such a way that everybody would love him. And he was going to come and kick out the Romans. And yet, what does Isaiah 53 tell us? If you read Isaiah 53, you read that the coming Messiah is going to be one that has no form and appearance that we should look upon him. You see, even the religious people in the first century often were caught up in the sights, caught up in the circumstances, caught up in what they saw and what they felt and began to dictate their view of God and their view of life based upon what they thought life should look like. And James knows that. And so James wants to correct that mentality in us. So how does he do that? Well, we see the second truth, and that is the promise. He wants to correct and reorient our minds to something different. And notice how he does that. Look at verse 9 again. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, now pause for a moment. I thought it was ungodly to boast, to brag. So what is James doing here? It's not ungodly to boast so long as you're boasting in the right thing. Jonathan Edwards was a 1700s pastor in Massachusetts, and he wrote a difficult work to read called The End for Which God Created the World. And what he did is he meditated on why should our affections and why should our desires be directed at God. And the premise of the whole argument is this, that God created everything, and because he created everything, he deserves the most glory. And so everything in the world should ultimately direct our affections and our praise back up to God. Because if we praise anything other than God, that thing becomes God. God has no competitors. Westminster Confession of Faith, or Westminster Catechism actually says in question one, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So it's not wrong for us to boast. The question is, what are you boasting in? If it's anything other than God, then it's wrong. But we should boast in God because he is the only thing worthy of our boasting. And he's the only thing that can actually hold and carry our boasting. And so we should actually boast, but we should direct it accordingly to God. Well, well how does that connect to verse 9? Well, look at it again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, if you're like me, I'm, I'm really confused. Why in an exaltation? I mean, if you, if you just go back to the book of Matthew, you will see James is picking up on a lot of language that Jesus has in Matthew. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see, blessed are those who are lowly. Blessed are the meek. 
So why would he get to this exaltation? How does he get to this exaltation? Well, if you read Ephesians 2, you see. In Ephesians 2, Paul unpacks what God does. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that God has, uh, that we were walking according to our flesh, following our own passions, following the prince of the power of the air, but God being rich in mercy. But God, because of his great love, loved us and made us alive together with Christ. How many of you, like, if the period stopped there, you would be excited? You're like, I know my life apart from Christ. He came. He saved me. Praise the Lord. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, by coming to faith in Jesus, you are made alive. He actually says that you are raised with Christ and you are seated in the heavenly places. What happens in heaven? Jesus reigns and rules. And if he is seated in the place where he reigns and rules, what is he seated on? His throne. And Paul says that if we believe in Jesus, we are seated with Jesus, reigning and ruling over everything for all of eternity. So when you think about an exaltation, and James telling us in verse 9 that the lowly, you feel like this world is difficult, you feel like everything is against you, you feel like you keep trying to follow Jesus and you are just down in the dumps. He says, don't base your life upon what you see, base your life upon the promise of God. And the promise of God is that for all of eternity, you're going to reign and rule with Jesus Christ. Think about that kind of advice. Have you ever been in conversation? Life is hard. Someone comes up to you and says, oh, it'll get better. Sometimes I just would like to say, it might not, and then I die. Because all of those ideas are focused now. James doesn't say, it might get better. I kind of wish that he would say, you might get your head chopped off. But for all of eternity, you're secure. For all of eternity, you're with Jesus around the throne of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't look here. Don't put your sight on what you feel. Put your sight on him. Because nothing will ever change that. Boast, but not here. Boast, because that great day will be far better than the best day this world ever has to offer. So boast in Christ. But then he gives another promise. Look at verse 10. So the lowly one is to boast in the exaltation that is for all of eternity. But, but maybe you're coming in here and you're thinking, well, I'm not there. Or maybe you're coming in here and you have means. You're richer. 
Let me just be clear. According to the world standards, if you are breathing right now, you are rich. Before you excuse yourself from what he says and thinks, I'm not rich like the guy next to me or the gal next to me, according to the world standards, we are the richest people in the world financially. So maybe we're in that category. And what does James say? Walk in with your chest puffed out and say, man, if the whole world just knew how to live life like me, they could get their act together. No. Notice what he says. The rich are to boast in his humiliation. Don't walk around as if you have it all together. Walk around knowing you don't have it all together. Again, Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. We followed our passions. We followed the prince of the power of the air. And we were by nature children of wrath, period. That's a dark trajectory that I have no hope or ability in myself to get out of. And so the next two words are, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy. We boast in our lowly state because we know apart from Jesus Christ, We've got nothing. I'm reminded of when Jesus comes to Peter and Andrew and James and John and calls them to be his disciples. We read this in Luke 5, 6. And as Jesus comes to them, they are out fishing. They fished all night. And they don't catch anything. And here Jesus is just walking on the shore. They don't know him. He comes up and he says, hey, put your nets out for a catch. I don't know about you. I I would hate to work a full shift, be 0% productive. Somebody who seemingly has no idea about the job I'm doing comes up to me and says, hey, just do this. I think I would have some phrases that I wouldn't want to repeat right now for that person. And they do it. They go and they let out their nets. And Luke writes that they catch so much fish that the first boat begins to sink. And as James and John come with their boat, their boat begins to sink. And in that moment, you might be like, wow, what an amazing miracle of God. But you know what Peter does? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He doesn't just see the miracle and be amazed at the miracle. He sees the miracle worker as somebody great and glorious. And he sees himself rightly and says, I have no value to be in your presence. Depart from me. Talk about humiliation. 
It's the kind of humiliation that James wants us to have where our eyes are off of ourselves and they're on Jesus Christ entirely. Where our eyes are looking to Christ and looking to the riches that he gives for all of eternity. And instead of focusing on my present experience, I'm elevating my eyes and I'm reminded of the truth and the reality that Jesus Christ gives and promises for all of eternity. Why does that matter? Well, James shows us in our third point, he shows us the proof of why this matters. He's wanting us to understand that there is this grand reversal, that there is a, an exaltation, but it's not now. The timing's not now. The timing is eternity. Push that ahead to the next life. Don't find it here. Don't look for it here. Look there. And the proof of it is here. He gives us an illustration from the world. We would be wise to pause and look at the way the world operates and learn from the world. I don't mean the people of the world. I mean the way that the Lord just made creation. It's one of the dangers that we have today. We are so distracted by everything else that we don't pause and just look at a spider and think, wow, what does that show me about God? And James does that for us. He pauses and he looks at a flower and he says, wow, what does that show me about the importance of life? And notice what he says. Look at verse 10. Why should the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich boast in his humiliation? What does he say? Because like a flower of the grass, this rich person who feels like he's got the world at his fingertips Just like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. I remember being a kid when my mom turned 40 and we put up a big sign making fun of the fact that she was 40. My mom remembers that too and she's counting down the days because now I'm getting close to that number and 40 doesn't seem so old. I remember the days of COVID. Man, the world's changing so much. And that was three and a half years ago. The things that you think are so important, they're here one day or gone the next. Just like that. And so we've got to be careful what we are setting our sights on. The vision of the perfect or the good life that we actually have. So many of us have this idea of the good life of 2.5 kids and the house that looks like HGTV and, and the, our kids have no behavior issues and they get good grades and we make enough money so that we can always buy whatever we want and we can go on all the vacations that we desire and we can get all of the pleasure of this life. And James says that's all worthless. It's here today and gone tomorrow. My guess is you're not going to stand before God and say, Man, the one regret I have, I didn't go on that vacation. Vacations are good. They're refreshing. But they're not priority. God's priority. And so if your vision 
is set on some sort of earthly pleasure, my guess is you're going to stand before the Lord not thinking, man, I spent my life well. But realizing in the light of his glorious face, everything else is just strangely dim. It's pointless. Then James goes in further. He could have just ended the illustration there. We get it, right? But he goes further. Look at verse 11. He says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. Years ago, so if you don't know, I'm from California. Years ago, uh, due to the cycles of lack of rain and, and all sorts of weather-related cycles, uh, one spring, this was probably four or five years ago, they had all of these beautiful flowers that were, were rising in these valleys in Los Angeles area. So much so that most people had never seen this flower in their life. And so thousands of people were packing roads meant for tens of people. And everybody wanted to grab pictures with these flowers. There's one thing that's true about California. It's beautiful for about three days. And then the sun comes up and it's, it beats on you to the point that that flower dies and withers away. And now we don't hear about it. And James says that's what the riches of this world are like. And so if your eyes are set on the riches of this world, he is saying you are so near and short-sighted because it's here one day and it's gone the next. Isn't that what Christiana read earlier? In Luke chapter 12, this rich man sees the plethora of riches and so he builds a bigger barn and then he sits and he says, ah, look at all the wealth I have. Life is good. Life is wonderful. I'm going to relax. And God comes to him and says, you fool, tonight your life is demanded from you. You see, when we put our hope into this world, it is just as fleeting as this world. And so James wants our eyesight off of what our present experience is. And mind you, their present experience was suffering for the sake of Christ. And he wants it elevated so that it might be set on the eternal reality with God forever. But how do we do that? Well, that's the last truth that we're going to see. That's really our response to these three realities. And that is the path. How do we live for Jesus when all of life just seems to come at us from every which direction? How do we have our eyes elevated to look to Christ and boast in eternity. Well, think about what James has just done. He has caused us to look at life through the lens of God. One of the dangers that we have is that we 
look at life through the temporary lens of today. We look at life based on what we think and based on what we feel. And James just simply says, look at the way the world operates and allow that to direct your vision back to God. How often do you do that? How often do you pause on life and allow your hearts and your mind to be redirected back to God out of the chaos of today, out of the chaos of this world? How often do you allow what you're thinking to be shaped by what you're seeing and your seeing is not shaped by seeing your Savior? So many of us get discouraged, we get depressed, we get discontent because our eyes are looking outward. But we're looking horizontal. We're not looking vertical. By looking horizontal, we become numb to the things of God and we no longer see God as important. And in the midst of that, as persecution and difficulty arises, we become eaten up by the world. And it's as if James is showing us how to slow down by just looking at the world. It's as if James is implicitly encouraging us to actually slow down from the frantic activity and learn about the Lord. Do you do that? Just started a new book yesterday that is talking about how we live a life that is devoted to Christ. And in the introduction, the, the author talks about three steps. The first step is that we contemplate Christ. We think about him. We think about what his word says. We read other books so that we might think about truth about Jesus Christ. And then we incline ourselves we push ourselves to Jesus. We plead with Jesus in prayer. We help my heart to love these truths. Help my heart to understand these truths. Help me to grasp these truths. And then we find satisfaction in those truths. We then cherish those truths. We take those truths with us throughout the whole day. May some of us, maybe some of us just struggle just spending time with Jesus. And so we are constantly boasting in the things of this world because we're not spending time with Christ. But maybe some of us are still boasting in this world because we spend time with Christ and we're done meeting with Christ as if we're done meeting with a friend. And then we go throughout our day leaving Christ behind. I read my Bible. Great. But did you take that truth with you? Did it live inside of you? Did you allow it to stir you in affection for Jesus Christ? After all, even in the Lord's Prayer, do you remember how Jesus starts? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Man, you are glorious, Father. Before I get to anything else, you are glorious. And may your name be renowned and hallowed throughout the world. 
Think about that, what that does to your heart. Talk to me about a favorite sports team, and I will start like this. And by the end, my grin will be from ear to ear. How much more so with Christ? The more we talk together, the more we spend time together, the more we spend time in his word, the more we find those things that stir our hearts and we begin to place them into our life and into our schedules so that our eyes are ripped away from the things of the world and set for all of eternity. May that be true for us. The path in the midst of suffering and difficulty is to not stare at the suffering and difficulty. It's to not find self-help. May I be so bold? It's not even about your self-care. It's about your Savior. It's about basking in His wonder and rejoicing in who He is. Church, may we be a people who find that to be a rich life. Take all the pleasures of the world because they're here today and gone tomorrow, but may we be a people that find rich life in eternity with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. We thank you that you love us, that you've given us your word, that you have allowed us to be shaped and now challenged by your word. And I pray that we don't move on quickly without being challenged by your word this morning. I pray that you would allow the truth of your word to sink deep into us. And so, Lord, I I pray, I, I just ask that you would help us to see Jesus as better in the world, and that we would be a people looking to eternity, boasting in the exaltation with Christ for all of eternity. Father, I pray in your son's precious name. Amen. We're going to